Welcome to Talking EHS, a new podcast series from EHS Today, the magazine for environment, health, and safety leaders. I'm your host, Dave Blanchard, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Today, and I'm so glad that you've joined us. This podcast series will continue our long tradition of talking to some of the best and brightest safety professionals to get their insights on how to make the workplace safer. If you're new to us, please check out our website at ehstoday.com. We've got an extra special guest to help us launch our new podcast. So with no further ado, let's get started. We're talking today to Terry Mathis. Terry is somebody that EHS Today's readers don't really need a a whole lot of introduction to because he's been writing for the magazine and and doing other things for us for many years. So he's one of the most popular writers we've ever had. But Terry, for those who are are maybe new to uh, your name or at least aren't as familiar with, with your career as others since this podcast is going out, to a lot of different channels, not just to the EHS Today audience. Uh, maybe it would be a great way to just to start off this, this podcast with uh, some of your career highlights. For instance, you know, what, what got you into safety in the, in the first place and, and what kind of has inspired you to, to have an entire career dedicated to safety? Well, my corporate career was at Coca-Cola. And uh, even though my main responsibility was training, very quickly, a lot of the training I had to help with was safety training. Uh, I thought it was a real weakness in the, in the whole Coca-Cola curriculum. And the safety department had pretty well done their own thing. And uh, they came and asked for help. And uh, I got really interested in what they were doing, how they were going about it, and uh, was a little bit appalled at how weak it was. So uh, that, that kind of got me into it. And then uh, the company uh, kind of used me as a... a uh, problem solver. <laughs> the, uh, my boss was the VP of HR and he would come to me on, a, on occasions and say, Terry, we've really got a problem here. Can you put together a team, study this, figure out what we need to do, how we need to solve this? Or then several occasions, it wasn't a problem, it was an opportunity. And he'd say, we think we could be a lot better at this. Would you uh, put together a team, study it, figure out how? So uh, it, it, in my corporate career, I, I both got into safety and I got into problem solving. And so felt very secure in, in what we were doing. And we did a we did a safety program there that was just fabulously successful. And when my boss came and said, great job, next project, I said, uh, <laughs> I kind of like this stuff. I, I, I think this is something the rest of the world could benefit from. And I broke away from Coca-Cola. I started Proact Safety in 1993. And uh, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> yeah, it does now. Uh, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, I was scared to death. I knew I could do the work. I just didn't know I could get the work. Uh, you know, all the marketing I'd ever learned in my life was from Coca-Cola. And that's fine if you got a billion dollars, you know, just go out and do it that same way. But since I didn't have a billion dollars, I had to figure out how to how to get the work. And quite frankly, for the first year and a half or two years, I had a job lined up <laughs> to, to go back to if I, if, in case I couldn't make it on my own. And I, I knew the statistics, too, on how many, how few small businesses are actually successful and, and actually make it. 
And I wasn't just a small business. I was the smallest business you could be. I was Terry Mathis Incorporated, essentially, you know, for that first for that first period of time over there. It was a little bit scary, but I, I had a I had a couple of mentors that really helped me tremendously. Uh, one of them was a guy named Alan Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. And anybody that wants to be a, a consultant, God, if you haven't read Alan Weiss, you're missing the boat. I mean, he is the consultant for consultants, you know, and he really taught me what the business was all about. Got me out of thinking about a corporate salary and into thinking about the economics of, of running a consulting company and uh, was, was very instrumental in doing that. But, uh, you know, once I once I had a successful first year and a successful second year, I kind of let the, uh, the the backup job go <laughs> and started really concentrating on making the business successful. And uh, it, it really took off from there. And of course, I started adding people. Uh, the, the first person I added was one of my daughters who got out of graduate school and came back to work for me between or I got through with her bachelor's degree and came back to work for me between then and her graduate. And she's fabulously organized young lady and got me better organized and everything, too. And then when she took off and left, I started adding other people to the company. And uh, got, got it up to the point. And, and the great find in the company was kind of an interesting thing with Sean Galloway, who's now taken over the company. I mean, I, I found a bunch of people who could do part of what I could do. Uh, he's the first one I ever found that could do everything that I did and uh, and even more successfully than I do. So I, I felt so good. I, I didn't want the work that I had done to, to quit, to, to die and to go away. And to have someone like Sean to take it over has just been tremendously valuable to me. I think he's a I think he's a brilliant young man and uh, he does just some incredible work for the companies out there. Uh, and of course, he had the benefit of uh, starting on my standing on my shoulders for a little while, too, you know, to get started out there. So he didn't have to start from quite as basic a level as he could. But we did some really interesting things together, too. And, and one of the things that I thought was uh, it's kind of a, an, almost an accident, but a, a really fortunate one. Uh, we did a project, I think I can mention, on Georgia Pacific uh, back a number of years ago. And at the time, Georgia Pacific had like 172 business units around the world. And they wanted us to implement a safety program at each one of these units. And we said, well, that, that's not even practical, you know, for us to go around to that many units. So let's let's do a train the trainer kind of approach like that internal consultant kind of approach. Let's get your people together. And at that time, they were all either in, the, in North America or Europe. So they weren't quite as diverse as some of the clients we had later, but uh, we got them together in little clusters and trained the internal consultants. They went back out and started implementing the safety program. And Sean and I were their, their resource. So one day I got 40 something emails asking me the same question. And Sean got 30 something emails asking him the same question. <laughs> and we got together and said, we're tired of cutting and pasting on emails like that. How, how can we answer these questions better? And Sean said, you know, Apple has just started this thing called a podcast. He said, I, I think we could use that to, to answer these questions. So we got together and we got our first 25 questions, I think it was, that we were being asked the most often by Georgia Pacific internal consultants. And we answered them on 25 different podcasts. So then we trained our girls in the office that when somebody emailed us and said, well, what about this? They'd say, listen to podcast number 17 or whatever it was. And if you still have questions, then email back and we'll, we'll get Sean or, or Terry to answer it. Just took a tremendous burden off of us. And, and we were so proud of ourselves for being innovative and techno, non-technophobes and uh, solving the problem. And then one day I asked Sean, I said, I wonder how many of these 175 people that were trained are actually using this program. 
And John said, I, I think they have the software on there where I can find that out. He went away and he came back in my office about 10 minutes later with this big grin on his face. I said, okay, how many? I forget the exact number. It was like 3,895 or something like that. That's how many people were listening to our podcast. So we learned at that point that this podcast was of interest, not just to our trained internal consultants, but to basically everybody in safety. And we opened it up to the public and said, if you got topics you want us to talk about, send them in to us. And we started doing these podcasts like that. And I think before I left the company, it was 700 of them, I think, that we had, had put out there in the public domain. And they're still out there. And I hear a lot of people tell me that they're using those for their safety meetings, for topics for their safety meetings and, and things like that, and even playing some of them. We The first ones were fairly long because we were answering questions for for GP, but the, the, we got them shorter and shorter as they went on. And a lot of people said that these are just perfect for safety meeting topics. So anyway, I was what, the, what would you say were the, were the most popular topics that podcast topics that people were kept coming and wanting to listen to and ask me more questions about? Well, uh, a lot of, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of them in the early stages were upselling. How do I get my boss to be more serious about safety? You know, because a lot of safety people are in the middle. You know, they, they got a lot of people uh, that they have to convince to be safe, but they have to have a boss that they have to convince to support safety. And a lot of bosses were doing what the safety people were doing out there in the field. And a lot of them are about, you know, how do I get my leaders to lead safety, not just lead production? And you, you, you broach those topics a lot of times. I've written several articles on in EHS today too, but uh, that that was a was a huge topic. Then a lot of them too. How do I make my safety training more effective? You know, and and what do I do? And then they started. Getting, uh, I, I've done one of the articles for you that I, I said safety professionals, if they really progress in their, in their career, go grunt to guardian to guru. You know, first of all, they're just doing all the grunt work. They're just running around putting out fires and totally react to safety. And then they, they start enlisting other people to help them. They start realizing the supervisors need to be leading safety in their, in their work teams like that. And then they become the guardian. They become the manager of the managers, you know, of safety like that. <laughs> But then ultimately, when those people take over and the leaders take over, they become the subcontractor expert. They become the resource to the leaders and the supervisors. And when they come to them and say, well, what, is, what does OSHA say about this? Or what, what are our regulations on this? Or, you know, how do we accomplish this? Or how do we shape our safety culture the way we want to? You know, they become the subject matter expert. And uh, a lot of them were, were struggling with that kind of progression. Um, and then I think totally related to that, we got into safety metrics. You know, uh, safety metrics uh, in, in 1993 were absolutely abysmal. I mean, all we counted was how many people got hurt and how many, how bad they got hurt, you know, and how much it cost us. And it was totally reactive management. And uh, I think I've written a couple of articles for, for EHS today also about the, the, uh, the people started getting saying, well, we got to get away from this reactive to we got to be more proactive safety. So we need to find we're working, we're managing with lagging indicators. We need to find the leading indicators. And, you know, the, unfortunately, that's that's a great step, but it's not the end game. Uh, you're going from one dimensional thinking to two dimensional thinking. Well, that's great. The sad truth is the world's a three dimensional place. And uh, what most people were finding is leading indicators didn't directly impact lagging. And they weren't looking at those in between stages like that. So well, if we do more safety training, we'll have fewer accidents. 
No. If you do more safety training, you'll increase the competence. If you increase the competence, you'll increase the the uh, uh, performance. If you increase the performance, that will reduce the accidents. And they weren't thinking in a cyclical thing. You know, Deming said, if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. And most people can't don't describe safety as a process. They describe it as a linear thing. Well, if we do more of this, we'll get more of that. Or if we do more of this, we'll get fewer accidents like that. That's linear thinking, and it's not always exactly true. You've got to be thinking of the big picture. What, what, what are the, each of the steps that you're doing? We wrote a lot of, wrote a lot of the pod, did a lot of the podcasts on that topic, wrote a lot of articles. I think that's still an ongoing thing. Uh, I was just asked the last talk that I gave, I was asked to talk about uh, near misses. Well, near, near miss data is was one of the first early awkward attempts to find a leading indicator. You know, and in a lot of ways, it's not a leading indicator, depending on how you define leading and lagging, because I mean, an event's already happened. It's not a pre-event. It's not to prevent an event, it's to make that event less severe, you know, and, and try to, to, to get there. So anyway, that was kind of limited thinking, too. But uh, those were those were some of the early topics. And, uh, you know, the range of things, too. They got into everything initially. I mean, you can't you can't write 700, uh, 700 uh, podcasts on three topics. You know, you've you got to branch out and get what everybody else is asking. And uh, it, it got that way. But, uh, you know, the, the, I mentioned the Georgia Pacific thing. I learned a lot from them. And, and one of the things that I learned, too, that I think was incredibly valuable to me, uh, the head of safety for Georgia Pacific called me up one time and said, Terry, we need you to a meeting on Thursday. And I said, I can't make it. He said, oh, gosh. He said, I keep forgetting you're not one of our employees. <laughs> that was so rewarding to me that I had become such a part of what they were doing there. And I mean, a lot of what they were doing, I taught them to do. But, you know, they didn't think of me outside somebody selling them something. They thought of, of me as someone who added value to their safety program. And that was one of the most valuable things you can do as a consultant is to quit trying to sell something to somebody and start trying to add value. And uh, I got away from, I, I was nervous. I didn't want to be a salesperson. I, I had negative impression of a salesperson. I quit being a salesperson. And I started seeing, can I add value to your organization? You know, I didn't go in and say, I've got this thing. It slices, it dices, you know. Uh, I, I walked in and said, what is it? What is it you're really trying to accomplish? And let me see if I, I've got some expertise that can help you accomplish that. And we look for, we look for common added value. And I think that's when things really turned around for ProAct safety. When I quit trying to sell anybody and started trying to add value to what they were doing. And Sean Galloway picked up on that and wrote several articles on, you know, the importance of adding value and, and everything that, that he just took it to a, a whole new level beyond what uh, I had started, which he's done with almost everything that, uh, that we've done in the company. But uh, that was so rewarding to find out that that's the way to do it. And then Alan Wise, my old original guy who told me how to be a consultant, started uh, started writing about adding value and, and, you know, the value of adding value. And he called it values. He said, why are you charging somebody for your time and, and deliverables? Why don't you charge them for the value you had? You know, ask them, what value can I add to your company and how much is that worth? You know, we started doing things like that, too. And so people quit saying, well, you're, you're taking too much time. You're costing us too much money. They, they said, no, you, you, you told us what value you were going to add and you did it. Fantastic success. So, again, back to Steve. Steve Covey was a, a 
friend back in, in, the, in the day, too. I hated to see his passing back years ago. But, he, you know, his, uh, one of his seven habits was start begin with the end in mind. So we started doing that, too. We started, people say, well, we want you to come help us with safety. Now, uh, we started saying, OK, well, we'll successfully play. How will we know that what you've asked us to do has actually been done and been successful at it? What will success look like? And then we started asking companies. You know, they're saying, well, we're doing this thing on our own. We say, great. If you're successful with it, what does that success look like? How will you know that you've accomplished what you're trying to accomplish? So those are some of the some of the principles, I think, uh, of, that were, were incredibly important to me. But then we, we really got into uh, leadership style also leadership and leadership style uh national safety council started giving an award back several years ago called ceos who get it and i, I love the title because ceos either get it or they don't get it and you know there's a lot of ceos who think they got it but they're just giving lip service to safety and they're actually undermining it when they're going out there in the world there's a lady i met uh, at the um, campbell institute national safety council not from australia all she does is coach members of the board of directors to go out in the field and not destroy safety. And I thought that was a really interesting thing that she's made a whole career because I can't tell you how many times they've done that. And almost every safety professional can tell you about something that he planned a year in advance and some VP showed up and just wrecked it. You know, and he can't get it going again for another year because uh, the VP schedule was so much more important than his. Even though it was last minute and his was planned for you know, months and months in advance like that. So that leadership style became incredibly important. And then we got back around. I, I, I wrote a book in 1996 about safety culture. And unfortunately, nobody wanted to talk to me about safety culture in 1996. In fact, it was over 10 years later before that, that topic even, you know, got got a little hotter out there on in the marketplace and everything. But uh, we, we started doing a lot of a lot of people got very conscious of their safety culture and they didn't know what it was and they didn't know how to how to how to, to do it. And they tried to do it all at once. And they thought they were starting from scratch and all kinds of of things that, uh, you know, we had to correct a lot of misconceptions about that. But that's a lot of the, the work that we've done over the this period of time, that and the metrics. You touched on a, a number of really relevant topics. I think everybody listening to this podcast is probably just nodding their head and saying, yeah, yeah, uh, we, well, that's what we're seeing. That's what we're going through. That's what we're trying to figure out. One thing that you had, had talked about just a, a moment or two ago about how do companies define what success looks like? And, you know, for those, those safety people on, on listening to this podcast, they might be thinking to themselves, how do I convince my boss? How do I convince senior leaders here about the importance of safety? What, you know, you're, you, if, if there's a value that you can attach to safety, what would a, a safety professional having a, a tough time kind of, you know, trying to convince somebody uh, above them that they need to spend a little bit more or to invest in more people or just to invest in the idea of a safety culture in the first place? How do you convince senior management if they're not as forward thinking as some are right now, how do you convince those who don't even know what a safety culture is? Well, unfortunately, the, what usually gets leaders involved in something like that is some kind of tragedy. Yeah. 
you know, they, they, you see things rocking along pretty well and nothing's, nothing tragic has happened for a long time. And so they start thinking they're immune from that, that whatever they're doing is working and that uh, the, the bad's never going to happen to them. And then when it does, it's kind of a wake up call that, that shakes them to the roots out there and, and makes it happen. Uh, and unfor- that's unfortunate to me. You know, uh, I, I named the company Proact Safety, you know, because uh, we wanted to get people out of that reactive uh, thinking about safety. But, you know, quite frankly, so a, a lot of our early clients came to us after a tragedy. You know, the uh, they, they had gone for a long time without anything terribly serious happening. They thought that they were immune. They thought that they were past that and, you know, had that all under control. And then all of a sudden some terrible thing. One of my earliest clients, my second or third client, I'd been talking to them for six months, you know, and the safety guy wanted to have me out. He wanted us to get started and everything. He couldn't talk his leaders into it. They had two fatalities in them. And all of a sudden it's, you know, the, the projects ago. Like that, and that's that's so unfortunate that that you have to have something like that. So we started looking at things to to help people define their vulnerability, and we started teaching safety professionals to go to their boss, and their boss says, "Well, why should I spend any money on safety? Why should I do something that I'm not already doing?" And everything, and they started saying, "Look at look at our weak spots. Look at what could potentially happen." You know, and sometimes they can use things like near miss data to, to point that out. You know, well, nobody got killed, but look what happened. You know, a, a guy rode on rode on the top of a truck all the way out our gate, <laughs> you know, because he didn't get off before they were finished loading the truck and the guy drove off with him like that. Now, uh, how do you look at something like that and say we're good at safety? You know, no, we're not good at safety. You know, we're, we were lucky. That wasn't that wasn't good. That wasn't skillful. That wasn't well managed. That was luck. You know, and as long as we have luck at play out there, we need to get better. So, you know, can you help us? Can you help us get better? And a lot of times, too, though, what safety professionals do is they go to their boss. What they're asking for is money or something else. Like that. they need to go with the plan. You know, we uh, the, the man who's the head of safety at uh, Georgia Pacific. I asked him one time because they were always recruiting. And one of the things that I did in my career was I was always finding safety professionals who had just fallen out or, you know, had a company that merged and they lost they lost their position in the company. So there are always people looking for jobs. And Georgia Pacific at any given time had 25 or 30 openings. You know, so I just kept feeding them like that. But one time I asked the head of safety there, what are you looking for? What one thing? Would you would you like to see a candidate, whether it's somebody coming from another company or somebody coming right out of college? What would you like to see them do? And he said, make a five year plan to improve safety and carry it out. You know, so I started preaching that to a lot of the safety professionals. Well, how do I get my boss bought into safety? I said, make a five year plan and take it to him and say, here's what we need to do in safety. Here's strategically what we need to do to ensure that we, we keep safety in control or that we get safety in control. And when they started going with the plan, they had fabulously better results than when they went with their hat in their hand, you know, and that's a lot of, a lot of what was going on at the time. So that's kind of the a short answer to a long question, but uh, that, that, that's a lot of it. You know, if, if, if the safety leader, if the leaders lead, the followers follow. And sometimes uh, you have to lead the leaders into what they need to do. Uh, the head of, of uh, Colombian Chemicals back years ago uh, said, Terry, what's the worst thing I can do 
out there in the field to destroy what you're working on and what's the best thing I can do to support it? And I love that question. I never had never had a senior CEO ask me a question like that before. And luckily I talked to him what he could do and told him what he shouldn't do. And uh, basically they had, I mean, shortly after that, they uh, one of their best business units down in South America had a fatality. And I told him the worst thing you can do is go jump on this safety team and, and tell them that they failed because they had uh, some kind of accident early on in their process. They haven't, they haven't been going long enough to get control of that yet. I said, if you go down there and criticize them for what they've done, and if you go to, even if you go down there and act like you don't know what the heck you're doing, you can't speak the language of the process. And he went down there and did that perfectly. I had 12 people on the safety team down there. I mean, within five minutes of the time that he left their meeting, I had 12 people telling me what a fantastic leader they had in their company down there. Because he went down there and he said, this is a terrible tragedy. And we, we put you guys together to keep things like this from happening. And I know you're early on. He said, but how far away do you think? You know, did, you, did any of your data... Uh, foreshadowed this. Did you see this coming? Could you have predicted this? At what point do you think you could have predicted and prevented something like this from happening? And what can I do to help you get there faster? And I mean, what a, what a fabulous thing for a leader to do, you know, to tell these people, you know, you're important, what you're doing is critically important. And uh, I understand what you're doing and what, you know, how far along are you? And what can I do to help? I mean, that that's powerful leadership in safety. But so few safety leaders do that. Almost always when something goes wrong, there's got to be a scapegoat. Somebody's got to be blamed. You know, the, the, uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm not against blame. Uh, it's easy to do. <laughs> the problem is it's not terribly effective. You know, right. blaming somebody doesn't necessarily fix a problem. That one of the most pop- popular signs I ever made at Coca-Cola said, fix the problem and not the blame. You know, I mean, people loved that. And a lot of the leaders actually got into that. And, you know, they'd say, well, Terry, I went, I had this problem. And I said, well, did you fix the problem or did you fix the blame? And it got to be kind of a mantra there. And, and it was very effective. But that, that's, that's a lot of what, uh, a lot of what leaders really need to do. And again, I think the number one problem late in my career that I saw people was trying to do too much at once. And that's why when I wrote the book on safety culture, I called it Steps to Safety Culture Excellence. And I made an acronym out of steps. And I said, that's strategic targets for excellent performance and safety. So we want to get better at safety. And I said, good, what part? Well, everything. Yeah, but what part first? Well, we want to get rid of accidents. Which ones? All of them. Well, which ones first? <laughs> you know, I started pinning people back down to that. And in the book, I use the old Chinese proverb that says, even a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You know, and I, I said, you know, if, if you're, everybody's thinking about culture, we want our culture to be, and they use adjectives, we want our culture to be collaborative, communicative, associative, and that's that bullshit. What you want your culture to do is to have a capability, the capability to focus on a specific safety improvement to accomplish it and move on to another one. And I call that a step. If you can teach your culture, take a step. How many steps is it between where you are and where you need to be? You know, and, and that's the way to improve a culture. And when, when they try to do it all at once, they, they overwhelm themselves and, and everybody else. And usually their efforts stall and people become frustrated because they weren't successful uh, based on their, their definition of success. And, and the whole thing falls apart. You know, you got to do it a little bit at a time. 
you know, the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? You know, a bite at a time. At a time you, right. <laughs> you try to eat the whole elephant at once, you choke to death and you tick off the elephant. Both of those things are bad. <laughs> so that was, that was a lot of what I did in the end of my career was, it was get people to slow down, strategically map out what they needed to do and, and approach it that way. We've been talking with Terry Mathis, the newly retired head of Proact Safety and longtime columnist with EHS Today. And we've talked Terry into appearing with us uh, from time to time, not only on this initial podcast, but uh, we have so many topics that we are not even going get, to get around to talking about, Terry. But that's fine, because as, as you were talking about your 700 different podcasts, we don't want to make this a 14 hour podcast. We'll, we'll keep it <laughs> relatively short and come back for more. But let me close with one, one last question uh, because I think it's, it's still very fresh and well, it's, it hasn't gone away either. It's, it's the pandemic. Uh, it, things are, are improving and people are, are getting back out and, and, and being part of the, the world again. But ha- have you seen that we've learned that we, the, in the safety profession, have learned anything about how best to protect workers? You know, what, what mistakes maybe we don't make in the future in terms of uh, people's attitudes, people's uh, willingness to do certain things, people's fears or um, trepidations about coming back to the workplace too soon. What, what, what do you think we've learned, if, if anything? I think the, the most the most overwhelming and positive thing that a lot of my clients and the people I was associated with learned was that you don't have to micromanage. You know, the pandemic made it impossible to micromanage. You couldn't be there on site. You couldn't oversee everything that everybody did. You couldn't get them together in a group and train them. You couldn't, you, you couldn't do all these things that we've done in the past. And they had to learn alternatives to that. Now, some people learned it and some people just couldn't wait to get back to the micromanaging, uh, you know, of of their people. But a lot of them did. A lot of them learned that their people are more capable and independent than they thought they were and that they don't have to micromanage people. They just need to teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves, you know. And uh, I, I think that was the biggest, most positive thing that was learned. You know, we also learned a lot of our weaknesses. We learned a lot of things that we were relying on that didn't work very well and couldn't work anymore. So uh, that was the big one, I think. Okay. Thanks so much, Terry. Uh, And uh, we will be welcoming you back soon with a whole lot more uh, directions of of questions that we'd love to talk about in the future. I hope so. Thanks, Dave. And that's going to wrap it up for our debut episode of Talking EHS. Our thanks to our special guest, Terry Mathis. You can find probably close to 100 articles and columns that Terry has written for us at the ehstoday.com website. And while you're there, feel free to subscribe to any of our regular series of newsletters. For Talking EHS, I'm Dave Blanchard. Stay safe and stay healthy.